treat to, to just get to sit in these six verses. Let's read this. Verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening uh, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Uh, let's, let's jump right in with our truth statement. Uh, the truth statement today is live boldly, not letting this world hold you back from taking risks by faith for God's glory. We're called as Christians to live boldly, and even though this world throws a lot of things at us, conditions may not be perfect, uh, will never be perfect, we're, we're called to, to live boldly and take risks by faith in order to glorify God. Spiritual wisdom says that we live not by caution, but by courage. So starting in verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, you'll find it after many days. Give a portion of seven or eight, for you know not disaster what may happen on the earth. So when I read this verse the first time, I pictured a loaf of Fran's bread in its white uh, and red and blue plastic wrap, and I throw it into the river, and it splashes, and it goes down the river. And I don't imagine that after several days I will find it. What I imagine is that it will get waterlogged and soaked to the bottom, and if I wanted to find it, I would need... Uh, goggles and, and a snorkel. These verses are a little confusing. Uh, there's a couple ways that people have, well, there's more than a couple ways people have interpreted these. There's a couple that I think uh, are good. Um, the first is, some interpret this as a call to be generous to the poor. Casting your bread on the water is sharing with people in need. And, and the idea is that eventually, when you need help, you'll get help too. Um, there's an Arabian proverb that says, Do a good deed and throw it into the river. When this dries up, you shall find it. Pretty similar. Uh, some, some look at this verse uh, and they think of Luke 6:38. Give, this is Jesus, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So then they look at verse 2 when it says give a portion to seven or eight, and, and this is giving generously, right? Uh, giving seven would be generous. Giving eight would be even more generous. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 has kind of a similar connection here. Um, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. So giving your portion is to share of the good things that God has given you with those who have need. Sharing seven is nice. Sharing eight is even nicer. That's one option. Another option is that this casting the bread on the waters is actually a, a picture of international trade. Right? So you're, you're sending your bread, you're sending your, your goods 
in ships to be uh, their exports to be traded in other lands. Uh, you send your ship out to foreign lands, and the hope is that they'll return with things that are even better. You make this investment, and you get a good return. But there's risk. There's risk in sending out what you have in order to get something valuable in return. We know the saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So verse 2 when it says give out seven or even eight portions, we would call this uh, diversifying your investments, right? We, we know it's prudent to have several investments. You don't invest all in one thing. E even though you do as much research as possible, you get advice, you, you, you do what you can, you do your due diligence, you really still don't know what will happen with that investment. Uh, so, so you spread it out over several investments. The, the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, is one that we all know. Um, you spread your investments to several places, and this is wisdom that has existed for centuries. So Solomon, he had a fleet of ships. First uh, Kings chapter 10 tells us that he sent out a fleet of ships with his goods to be traded so, so that he could, he could gain um, on his investment. First Kings uh, 10 22 tells us that three years later, those ships came back. On them, they had gold, they had silver, there was ivory, apes, peacocks. Right? I've never invested and gotten a peacock back. That'd be kind of, I don't know if that'd be cool or not. It'd be cool for a couple days. Um, so they, they send these ships out, and there's a long-term commitment here, right? Like, we're pretty impatient when we want something to be shipped to us, right? I can hop on my phone right now and order on Amazon Prime, and if it's not here in two days, I have a legitimate gripe, right? That, that's not how it was for Solomon. He sent out his investments in his three years. Three years before he heard back, he sent out his ships, he sent out his people that he trusted to go up and down the coast to the, the different ports. And they're wheeling and dealing, trying to get more than, than what he sent out. And here's Solomon waiting. He waits for three years. He doesn't know, right? There's no phone, there's no email. He doesn't know if a ship is wrecked. He doesn't know if, if things have been stolen from his ship. He's got a person watching the sea. And then one day they come back after three years and say, hey, your ships are on their way back. And then when the ship gets there, then he sees what his investment has produced. So this is good, good uh, financial advice, sound financial advice. But let's think spiritually because I think that's where the preacher is going here. Let's think about this wisdom. The preacher is encouraging us to look at how we handle our spiritual business. What are we investing in the kingdom of God? How are we investing our gifts, our skills, our experience, our time, our finances? One commentator wrote, Similarly, the preacher has called his readers to take life as from the hand of God and enjoy it despite its trials and perplexities. Such a life contains with it elements of trust and adventure, demands total commitment, and has a forward look to it a reward which requires patience. So Christians, your life in Jesus, does it involve those elements that were listed there of trust and adventure, total commitment? Is your life in Jesus forward-looking? Are you patiently awaiting the reward for your investments? If you've taken the perspectives class, you might remember hearing about one-way missionaries from two centuries ago. Um, so these missionaries 
It's probably obvious they bought a one-way ticket. They did not buy a return ticket. They had no plans at ever coming back to their home. Instead of suitcases, many of them packed the, the few material belongings that they had into coffins. As they sailed away, they waved goodbye to everyone they knew and loved. Everything that they knew, they were never returning home. One of those missionaries was A.W. Milne, uh, 1785 to 1882. He set sail for the South Pacific, and he was aware that the headhunters there had martyred every missionary that had come before him. Milne didn't fear for his life because he'd already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe, and when he died, they buried him in the middle of the village, and they inscribed this on his tombstone. It said, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. There's another missionary, James uh, Calvert, uh, lived from 1813 to 1892, and he was committed to reaching the indigenous people uh, of the uh, Fijian Islands. Um, and it's reported that on his voyage over, the captain repeatedly tried warning him. He said, you will lose your life and the lives of those among you if you go among these savages. And Calvert replied, we died before we came here. Calvert and Milne understood the implications of Galatians 2.22, I've been crucified with Christ. They understood that, my guess is much better than we do. Do you live as one who has already died with Christ? Last week I asked the question, are you on autopilot with Jesus? In, in Philip Ryken's commentary on this passage in Ecclesiastes, he says, and I love this, he says that Christians should live as venture capitalists for God's kingdom. That, that we are always on the lookout for how to invest in the gospel, how to invest with the gospel in this world. Now venture capitalists put up big amounts of money, right? There's giant risk. They do their due diligence, certainly, but there is huge risk. The reason, though, is there is great reward. So if being uh, on autopilot in your relationship with Jesus resonates with you, uh, I hope you recognize that, that being on autopilot with Jesus and, and being a venture capitalist for Christ, those two do not coexist together. Right, if being on autopilot for Jesus is here and over here is venture capitalist, where are you on this spectrum? One thing I've noticed is the older I get, um, and half of you think I'm not old at all, and half of you think I'm really old. Uh, the older I get, I'm realizing the more comfort I want in life. And, and some of that, it, it, I think, is somewhat necessary. Um, uh, like if you've seen uh, kids, right? A little kid could sleep on this floor. No problem. I mean, I've seen tons of youth group students do it over the years, right? There's just concrete right under this floor. I used to be able to do that. When I used to go backpacking as a kid, I had this, this little air mattress, a thermarest, so thin. And I think it really was just a placebo effect that it was doing anything at all. Because the thing, I, I felt every rock. Now, I, I have this awesome air mattress that I bought at REI. It's like that thick. It's huge. I need it now so I can actually fall asleep. Otherwise, my next day of camping will be miserable. A couple of years ago, I started waking up, and I'd have pain in my left foot for like the first 20, 30, 40 steps. Like, it just hurt. But it, it eventually, somehow, it would work itself out. It, I experienced this for a couple of years. And then in talking with people that are uh, further down the road in life, 
I realize maybe I shouldn't buy the cheapest shoes that I can find, right? Like, I go to the Nike outlet, and it, like one time I found a pair for $12. I bought two. I was so excited. And in talking to people, I'm like, man, maybe I actually need to buy some shoes that give my feet a little bit better support. So this last September, for my birthday, I'm like, I'm buying a nice pair of tennis shoes. I wear tennis shoes like six days a week. I've not had pain in my left foot every morning since then. It's been awesome. So as we grow older, we want more comfort. I think some of it, I don't know if you can call it necessary, but it's really, really helpful. There's a problem, though, spiritually when we live this way. When more and more of following Jesus is about comfort, I'd say we're not living according to the call of Jesus. Paul, in Ephesians 4.1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Do you walk or do you live in a manner worthy of the calling to follow Jesus? Jesus, the one who came to this earth that he created, lived here among his people, fully God and fully man, yet without sin. The one who died for us, taking on the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our rebellion against him, and then three days later, rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And what he offers is forgiveness. He offers to us, he says, do you want to be reconciled with your maker? Do you want to be reconciled with God? And if you place your trust in him, if you turn from sin and turn to Jesus, scripture tells us, you'll be saved. So is, is your life a response to that Jesus? Is your life a response to the gospel? There's not a catch, but there is a calling. We don't just get all the goods, but we pour out in response to Jesus a life of thanksgiving to him, a life that brings glory to him. Jesus told us to go and make disciples, that that globally, all the Christians together, our job is to find a way to tell every person on this planet that Jesus is the only one who can save, that he has made a way. So are you living a life worthy of that calling? Ephesians chapter 3, just a chapter before, in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Are we living bold lives of faith with the hope that Jesus will be glorified? He's able to do way more than we think. He's able to do way more than we even think to ask. And Jesus didn't tell Christians they would be comfortable. He said quite the opposite. He said things like in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny himself, pick up this instrument of death, lug it around, and follow me every day. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, we'll face trial and tribulation. He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble sounds like a promise to me. And this is what bugs me every time I read this verse. I feel like my life has been pretty easy. I've been through some things, but, but for the most part, my life's been pretty easy. And I'm grateful for that, but I also wonder how much of that is me loving comfort. How much do I seek comfort rather than the glory of Jesus? I don't know if you notice how Paul in Ephesians 4, 1, there self-identifies. He says, I'm a prisoner. And this isn't 
a really cool spiritual metaphor for being a slave to Jesus. Right? This is literal. He sat in prison for sharing the gospel. Paul lived a hard, uncomfortable life, boldly for Jesus. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. There were times he was beaten and left because they just thought he was dead. He was bitten by a snake once. He was driven out of towns. Obviously, he was arrested. The guy did not live a comfortable life in following Jesus. He lived boldly so that people would have the chance to respond to the gospel. Christians, we ought never stop finding ways to invest in the gospel. So are you making gospel investments? We, we invest certainly in relationships. Are there people that you're investing in, hoping for an opportunity someday to share the good news with? Do you open your house for others? Do you have people over for a meal or invite them over to play board games or, or, or to watch some sporting events? Parents, do you open your house for your kids' friends to come over, not just so that you can watch your kids and make sure they're safe, but so that this, this kid that doesn't know about Jesus can be in the home of a Christian family and, and will hear and see Jesus' things in their life and hopefully someday have an opportunity to share Jesus with them and maybe even their family. Are you invested in your neighbors? God placed you in your neighborhood. It wasn't your realtor. God placed you in your neighborhood in his providence. One simple investment is time and prayer. Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for God's work? Or do we just pray about our own stuff? What if you woke up 15 minutes earlier each day just to pray? Just to pray for the, the work of the gospel in our area, all over the globe? Or, or what if you did that at lunch each day? Maybe another way you can invest is you are a great listener. Right? We all know people that are really, really good listeners, and people love it when they find someone that will actually listen to them. Because we live in a culture that's so rushed and so busy. We're so distracted. So to, so to find someone that actually listens to you is a gift. Maybe, maybe God might use that to give you opportunities, kingdom opportunities. Are you an encourager? Right? Do you just love to text people, like encouraging things? Like A lot of people, maybe guys at least, like maybe you're texting trash to your friends. But there are people out there that... That they just love to encourage people through text. Or maybe, old school, you actually write a note. Man, I love it when I get a handwritten note from someone. Are, are, are you an encourager that loves to lift others up? Use that for the kingdom. Do you love to serve? Do you look for ways at your workplace or at school to serve? I, I knew a guy who, um, after years of working at the same place, he just had a reputation for serving people, doing things that were never a part of his job. In fact, he'd do things that were a part of other people's job, and it gave him opportunity to talk about Jesus. Do you love giving gifts? Some people are so thoughtful at giving gifts. They, they, it's like they're hardwired to not just give extravagant gifts, but give gifts that are really, really thoughtful. And I, I love that they, they're able to share um, God's love in, in doing that. Who knows how God might use that in our church or with your neighbors. How about your expertise at work? You're going to work 20, 30, maybe 40 years, maybe in the same job, maybe in the same field. God's honing skills in you. I've seen so many people retire, and then God ends up using that thing that they just thought was to earn a paycheck. He uses that, that unique skill in God's kingdom years later. How are you ministering to others? 
This doesn't have to be a church-sponsored thing. You don't need to be a part of a nonprofit. You don't need a church leader to tell you to go for it. If you see an opportunity to minister, just take it. And obviously, we, we do have ministries here, right? We have track. We've got our first track camps coming up this summer. We need people that are praying for those. We need, I think, more counselors for those still. we got lots of positions, actually, to fill. Um, we, we have our prayer team that, that, that's here every week to pray with people. We have meals ministry. We have youth group. The young adults group started this last year. We have Sunday school teachers in the back. We have family promise. I don't know if you know. We haven't talked about this in a while, but we have a group on Mondays that call themselves the hobby makers, and they, they just make all kinds of things. They're sewing lots of stuff. A couple of years ago, or several years ago now, they uh, found out about this ministry called Dress a Girl Around the World. And they started making dresses for, for little girls that really were dressed in rags. And, and they thought they were just giving dresses, but it's been amazing, actually, what it's done to change the lives of these girls. So how are you investing in the kingdom? Now, in one sense, if you give financially here, you're investing globally because every month we support missionaries that Harvest is connected to. One critical kingdom investment is time in the word. Knowing God through his word, treasuring his word in our heart. And when we do that, man, we are so much better prepared to share about Jesus. The well is deeper and deeper the more time we spend with God in his word. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. As God speaking, he says, It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Verses 3 and 4. And verses 3 and 4 are, are like a warning for us not obeying 1 and 2. Um, verse 3, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Kind of feels like a no-duh, right? (laughs) Yeah, if the clouds are full, it's going to rain. Like my seven-year-old can see that. If a tree falls, it doesn't matter which way it falls. Where it falls, it's not getting up. There it's going to lie. So what's his point? His point is in verse 4. I think it makes it a bit clearer for us. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The image here is a a farmer, and he's looking at the circumstances, and it's time to sow seed. It's time to scatter that seed, to plant it. But he sees the clouds. He's like, man, it looks like a big storm's coming. I don't know if he's afraid of like a flash flood. I don't know if he's afraid that all his seed's going to get washed away. But he can't control the rain. He's looking at the trees. He knows every tree falls at some point. He's nervous about that thing going down, maybe for himself, maybe to take out his crops. I don't know. He's staring at the wind, and he's just, he's holding back. He's stuck. He doesn't have the power to control the wind, the tree, the rain, but he does have the power to control when he sows seed. And he has the power to, to choose the day that he harvests. But he's on the sidelines, and he's looking for the conditions to be just right. The preacher already told us way back that there's a time to plant and there's a time to harvest. Are you risk averse? It's easy to hold back and wait for perfect conditions. Um, there's, there's certainly wisdom in evaluating conditions in a situation before jumping in, but the problem comes when we're waiting for the perfect conditions. 
You don't know uh, conditions were perfect until they've already passed. So you wait and wait, and then you realize, "Ah, I missed my opportunity. Or or maybe the condition wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. It would have been more than adequate. One problem with waiting for perfect conditions as Christians is that we're trusting in conditions rather than trusting in God. We're not trusting in the Holy Spirit. We, we need the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not need perfect conditions. We think through Scripture, we can think of account after account, story after story, where not only did God uh, use conditions that were not perfect, it sure looks like he didn't want them to be perfect, so that he could reveal his power and his glory. Perfect conditions are really a, a myth. Maybe you hold back and sharing about Jesus because you're just waiting until you know more about the Bible rather than stepping out in faith and sharing what you do know about Jesus. And, and certainly continue. It's good to want to know more about Christ through the Bible, but step out in faith. If everyone waited for perfect conditions, no ministry would ever start. There's, there's always a reason to ta- uh, not to take a step of faith. Big and scary reasons to us. But none of those reasons are big or scary to God. I, uh, I'm sure you're not surprised by this, but I'm not a farmer. Um, I, I have little gardens that do okay sometimes. Um, but I do know that if I do not plant seeds, there's no chance at plants growing. Weeds grow. <laughs> I'm really good at growing weeds. But if I do not plant seeds, right? If I, if I don't plant seeds, nothing will grow. And this farmer... He's guaranteed there will not be a harvest if he doesn't plant. At some point, he has to take a chance, and the farmer's stuck. He's probably stuck by fear. How does fear hold you back in kingdom work? How does fear keep you from talking about Jesus to people who don't know him yet? How does fear keep you from using your spiritual gifts? How does fear keep you from stepping out in faith? One really stupid fear that I've had as long as I can remember is having people over to my house. I don't know why, but it fills me with anxiety. Um, I'm good with like a person or two, especially if I know them well, but getting bigger groups over, it just, I mean, even now, I'm slightly anxious, which feels ridiculous. Um, Nobody's coming to my house today. Um, But I've always had this fear, and it's not insurmountable, but I have to talk myself through it. Like, I have to tell myself, like, what's the worst case scenario here? Like, these people like you. I have to pray through it. But there are times when that has kept me back from investing in the kingdom, from opening up my house, this resource that God has given me. And God's pretty clear that Christians, we should be hospitable, right? We should demonstrate Christ's love by having people over to our house, by breaking bread together, by being together. My fear is as silly as the farmer's fear of being afraid of the tree or the rain or the wind. Maybe it's not fear that keeps you back from sowing seeds in God's kingdom. Maybe it's procrastination. Maybe you keep saying, yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to join that ministry next year. I'm going to do that next year. I'm going to wait. I'll, I'll talk with him next week. Or maybe it's selfishness. All of us, I think, tend to view what we have, the resources we have, as ours, rather than God's gifts to us that, that we're, we're entrusted with so that we can bless others. Right? We, we've heard um, in church before people talk about we're, we're stewards of what God has given us. Right? We're stewards of the time God's given us. You're a steward of the home God has given you, the vehicle he has given you, the education 
that you have, the ability to travel, the unique interests that God has given you, the life experience, the languages that you know, the skill sets you have, the income that God has blessed you with, the, the heart that God has given you for certain things. We're, we're stewards over these things. I, I love that God gives us hearts that are, are just pointed, I mean pointed at Christ, but then pointed at specific things that are a little bit different. Like if you just take people that love children, just have a heart for children within that, there, there are people uh, that, that love, like in youth group, I always had some staff members that just loved the marginalized kid. They, they just wanted to go hang out with a kid that looked like they didn't even want to be there at youth group. Or, or, or we have staff members that, that just love the unchurched kid. Their heart just longs for that kid to come to know Christ. Or, or staff members who, who loved the church kid because church was hard for them growing up. It was a battle, and they, they want this kid to, to follow Jesus sooner than they themselves did. We have a lot of people in our church that have hearts for foster kids. Um, we've got a camp coming up, uh, two camps this summer, because we have a bunch of people that, that just that they want to love these kids. They want to point these kids to Jesus. They're hoping for an opportunity to, to share the gospel. God does this with our hearts in a ton of different ways, right? There are people that have hearts for the persecuted church that are just praying continuously for brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Next week, we get to hear from um, the, our, our newest missionary that we're supporting, Kayla Thomas. She's at heart for years and years and years for India. Um, I have a friend that has a heart for the people of Yemen. Like he, 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 would just, he longs for people in Yemen to come to know Jesus. Anyway, the list goes on and on and on. God is so good in giving us what we need to love a broken world in, in order to reach the world with the good news of Jesus. Verse 5, as you do not know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We know way more than Solomon did uh, about the development of a baby. And yet we still do not know, like he points out, when God puts the Spirit in the child. We don't know how he does that. We don't know when he does that. And his point here is there is much mystery in the work of God. It's humbling it's, it's a calling for us to believe in faith that God is at work, even though we don't know how. And we don't know the ins and outs of the work of God, but we do know some things that he's revealed to us. We do know that as believers, the Holy Spirit is in us. So, so when we're going to try and invest in the kingdom, it's not us on our own, but it's us in the power of the Spirit. We know that the Spirit works in us and through us. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one that works in the heart of an unbeliever to bring about faith, but there's still much mystery. So this means that we work in faith. We trust God. We trust God as he's tasked us to make disciples. We trust him as we try and share with others about Jesus. And we know that there will be a lot of people that reject Jesus, but we know that there will be, there will be some that receive him. And when I read in Revelation about the myriads of people, it tells me that there's more people that are going to respond than my little brain thinks. Verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The preacher is wise. He tells us, do not hold back. Boldly throw that seed out there, even though the conditions are not perfect you do not know what will happen. So we need to sow the seed that we have. We don't know how 
God will use it. We don't know what God will use. We know that God is mighty. We know that he is faithful. We know that his heart is for people to turn to him and to trust in him, to be saved by him. We know that there's power in the word of God. When the gospel is shared, that there will be some who respond to the good news. So we pray that the seed that we sow will lead to people responding in faith to Jesus. We don't know how God will do it. We don't know when God will do it. I heard a story this week uh, that blew my mind. Luke Short, 103 years old, sitting under this hedge in Virginia. And this sermon comes to mind that he'd heard years before. And in that moment, he asked God to forgive him. Right? Through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, he, he was saved. And he lived the rest of his days following Jesus. Lived to 106 years old, and time and chance got him. His uh, headstone read this, Here lies a babe in grace, aged three, who died according to nature, aged 106. So God took this gospel message that he heard from this sermon by a famous Puritan preacher, and on that day, he saved him. So what's crazy is he heard this sermon when he was 18 years old. 85 years, this things in him lying dormant, I guess. I don't know. Man, I can't imagine a preacher thinking 85 years later, something's going to happen. Incredible. We do not know God's timing. We don't know when God will use something. We throw out seed. We trust in God. So hearing this story, it's encouraged me a ton this week. Um, I've told you this before. When I really first started following Jesus, I just I was looking, I was probably forcing opportunities to share the gospel. I mean, I, I'm confident I made tons of mistakes in doing it, but man, I was sharing the gospel like crazy in my school. And I don't, uh, I, there, there are a couple guys that ended up coming to youth group that, that got saved, but man, there's way more people that I told about Jesus that did not get saved. And I hear this story, and I'm humble. I just go, God, you can do anything. Like, you, you can save my friend John that I've known since elementary school that I, I don't know how many times we talked about Jesus together. You can save my friend Brian. It's, it's, got, it's got me praying for these people that I used, to tell, uh, I used to tell them about Jesus all of the time. Philip Reichen, who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, he said, we should try and do whatever we can with whatever God has given us. Whatever your skill set is, whatever the resources are that you have, whatever those fears are that you have, come and bring them to Jesus. So are you a venture capitalist for God's kingdom? What do you have to invest? How has God gifted you? What skills do you have? Are you investing in your neighbors? Are you sowing seed in your school or workplace? I'm going to close with these two verses. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that, I ask that you would work in our hearts, God. Because uh, we are so good at, at not really listening to what you've told us to do. We're so good 
at kind of cruising through our life as Christians. God, there's a world that is dying that needs to hear about you. And, and we're so often satisfied in our own little world. Um, whether we're pretending to be oblivious or, or maybe we truly are oblivious to the needs that are out there. Jesus, would you wake us up? Would we, would we be a people that just long to have their neighbors, their friends, strangers even, come to know you, Jesus? Would you help us to confess the things that hold us back from being obedient to you? Lord, I, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of us are afraid. A lot of us are afraid to tell people about you, Jesus. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We're afraid that people will uh, think we're stupid. People will ridicule us. That maybe we'll lose friends, Lord. God, we confess that fear to you. And, and whatever other fears, Lord, will you help us to recognize those fears and confess those to you? Lord, we confess that, that we're selfish. God, that we love our time, that we love our stuff. So often when I get home, I just want to be with my family. Sometimes I avoid my neighbors, Lord. I pretend like I, I don't see them pulling out the garbage can, Lord. God, help us, Lord. Help us to, to realize we've got one shot at this life, and so do those people, and they need to hear about you, Jesus. Lord, would you help us to live bold lives of faith? Will we be courageous? God, in the areas we're cautious, would you show us that? Will you help us to grow in that? Help us to trust you in that, Lord. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.